All right, so we'll be continuing in Romans 13. I'd ask you to open your Bibles briefly, though, to Exodus 18. And the Lord God Almighty established the Hebrew Republic, giving the form of government to Moses. He established the order of government not based upon something peculiar to the Jewish nation, but rather he established it on a grounds associated with the nature of man. Exodus 18, Exodus 18, verse 1, And Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in everything in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Some people try to suggest that Jethro was a pagan priest, which would lead to the absurdity that Moses and the elders of Israel participated in a covenant meal in the context of a sacrifice with Jethro. Jethro is a believing priest, like Melchizedek. Okay, so this is before the establishment of the specific priesthood inside of the Hebrew nation. Okay, and so this is a legitimate act of worship And Jethro is going to provide prophetic counsel that Moses adopts. So let's keep reading. Verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Does this remind you of it is not good for man to be alone? The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. You see how these things have to do with the good of the people and of Moses. And so monarchical rule is undermining of the good of both. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk, and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you 
for they will bear the burdens with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. This is God's command. Now, elsewhere we're told, um, we're, we're also told of, of the selection of these people, that it's by the vote of the heads of house, the men are to choose, Israel chooses out. And so this is the same sort of doctrine. In the state, you have a doctrine of, okay, the magistrates accept new magistrates and the people elect them and it's a two key situation just like in the church you want existing rulers to accept new officers and you want the men to elect them and so the combination of those two things is to prevent unqualified men and men that are despised and not respected from entering office and so that combination is very helpful but there's a set of qualifications because we are tempted to look to the eye remember Israel chose a king they chose Saul because he was tall and good looking and so that's the general tendency uh, if you're good looking you have a much better chance of getting elected to public office just general rule so people are dumb right? that's the problem you, know, you look around you drive around you see the signs right? and basically what's been adopted is, is you see people saying here's a sign and the sign, you sometimes will see next to it something like orange spray paint over former President Trump's face, right? Referencing the idea of orange man. And you'll have a picture of the other candidate next to them. So somebody's trying to say, this person endorses me. The other person is trying to discount that by making fun of the person endorsing. You'll have a person that says, I'm a real conservative. You see a sign next to them that says creepy. You, you have another one that their last name starts with an S, and you'll see sleazy or scandalous, right? And it's this whole, like, scandalous person with an S last name or a sleazy person with an S last name. Ah, alliteration, that's catchy. Right? Mass marketing is essentially what political campaigns are built on now. So what does the Bible tell us to do? Well, first of all, we have a list here, and there's five attributes that are given. One, we are to elect men. Not a popular position. The Word of God says so. If you don't elect women, you elect men. Men are supposed to rule in the public sphere. They're not supposed to rule... Uh, they're not supposed to give way to women. It is a disgrace. Godly women can, when they're in a situation like Deborah, serve in the public sphere. But it is a statement of curse on the people that the men have abdicated and failed to stand in the gap. Second, they are to be able. This is the term for men of valor. Kail is able. So this means brave and competent. So they take initiative and they are competent. The next is to fear God. They must be believers. If you vote for an unbeliever, you are voting for an unfit person. In our time, that essentially means do they, do they claim to be a conservative Protestant at the minimum? Men of truth, which means they care about justice being done. This is about Ninth Commandment truth-telling, you know, bearing false witness versus bearing true witness. And fifthly, this is hating covetousness, which means they don't want to take bribes. They don't want to use the state to redistribute wealth. They don't appeal to covetousness. It's going to the voters. Socialists are, by definition, disqualified. If you advocate for taxing to redistribute wealth, you are using envy, covetousness, to seek to get elected to power. Those five attributes, you will find it is very difficult to find people you can vote for. If you vote for someone who is unqualified, you participate in their sin. If you vote for someone who is unqualified, you participate in their sin. We are tempted to pragmatic voting, to vote for the lesser of two evils. It is your duty, just as if, if, I, if, if some man here nominates a man who is not fit for the office of elder, you vote no. And so you are in the process of voting for primaries. You'll be voting coming up. I want to encourage you, it is your duty to not vote pragmatically. The most pragmatic thing in the world is to do what the law of God says. It is effective. It helps us to get things done. We are not wiser than God. 
So that is the qualification set for officers. I want to remind you, go to your, um, go to your handout, limits on the state. I talked about this last time, and I want to, this is the very last one. This is page five in the doctrinal section. We talked about this. I didn't go through this list, so I want you to have this in mind as you listen to people talking about the state, and they're trying to get your vote. Do they care about the Bible? Do they reference the Bible at all about their authority? Claims of authority must be proven, the regulated principle of government. Our political agenda is to see Jesus Christ acknowledged as king, to see his word acknowledged as the authority that governs states, and to see Christian liberty preserved and biblical justice administered. If someone does not have the courage to reference the Bible, they do not have the courage to do those things. They are not men of valor. Two, no human has authority over another human except insofar as God has delegated power of one man over another. Liberty from the doctrines and commandments of men is the result of that. If we, if we don't carefully guard sphere creep, the state easily captures all the other spheres. And we live in a time where people worship the state and the tendency is to look to the state to solve every problem. You know what the state should do about the economic downturn? Nothing. They should lower taxes because they're stealing too much money. And they should stop manipulating the currency and go back to fair weights and measures. So appealing to the government to try to get things done to make the economy happen. Right? We are, there's a bill that's likely to pass that's, um, that's been talked about. Senator Machen having uh, agreed to do a tax hike. You know, these things are, are going on now. Apparently, the tyrannical taxation that we have is not high enough, and so we need to tax more. That's the general idea. And we haven't printed enough money, so the government needs to spend more money it doesn't have, pretend to be borrowing it by printing it and borrowing it from itself. And so this is what's going to be done, and this is supposed to help to reduce inflation. This is the, the title of the bill. It's the Reduce Inflation Bill or something to that effect. It's one of the great absurdities, the Orwellian nonsense that comes forth is absurd. So this is human authority gone amok. Three, God delegates authority by his law. So we look for claims of authority from the law. Four, the state is given limited coercive power. So the state is supposed to punish evildoers. Five, the state's coercive power exists to restrain evil by A, the punishment of crimes within its jurisdiction, B, the waging of just wars, and C, the responding to and stopping of breaches of the peace. It, the state is an avenger and a night watchman. It is not to be a surveillance and police state. Six, the state is authorized to use coercion as regards property for, and here, here's a list, extracting a limited set of taxation. So 1 Samuel 8 says 10% or more is a curse. Uh, imminent domain is forbidden. Naboth's vineyard is the best example of uh, eminent domain in the Bible, forcing the taking of property through government force. Naboth had a vineyard that he received from you know, his inheritance, uh, and uh, King Ahab wanted to take the vineyard. He wouldn't sell it to him, and so there was an arrangement to use force to have him punished, killed, and have the property taken by force. B, taking property from convicted criminals is a punishment for some crimes to restore a multiple to the victim, victim's rights. C, requiring the fulfillment of lawful contracts and repayment for costs and obtaining rights. So somebody harms you, they won't pay for it. They need to pay for your attorney's fees and they need to also pay for your damages. Um, C, requiring the fulfillment of lawful contracts and repayment for costs. Sorry, I reread that. D, Forced labor when property is not available. So somebody steals from you, blows it all, and they go, I don't have any money to repay you. Ha ha. Okay, great. Now you have to work. Okay, so that's, that's the biblical setup there. Um, e, the taking of property for evidence with compensation for its seizure for a limited period of time. And what is that limited period of time? The time it takes for a speedy trial, speedy public trial. F, taking of restitution and tribute from those states that surrender before conquest. G, seizing spoils of war to be distributed to those who carried the burdens of the war 
from the states that did not surrender but were conquered. That's how the state gets property. Those are the coercive means. You could donate to the state, I suppose. There are probably better uses of your money. But those are the lawful sources. Seven, God defines what actions are crimes in his law by attaching a coercive penalty to criminal actions in the scriptures. The things that have a coercive penalty attached to them are crimes. Eight, God defines the just penalties for crimes by giving maximum penalties for all crimes and minimum penalties for some crimes with the mechanism of the choice of the victim. Right, so the victim gets to choose between the lawful maximum and the lawful minimum. The victim selects the level of penalty inflicted upon the convicted criminal based upon the allowed maximum and minimum. That's it. That's the state. You hear people campaigning to do more? They're going beyond the limits of Scripture. So, that's how you determine which one is best. The one who's most advocating for the most like what the Bible says. The five qualifications are non-negotiables. Then you're looking for the person who most understands the set of powers the state actually has and has a credible profession that they will actually keep their oath. There are very few people who are qualified to be voted for. So what do we do? We pray that the Lord will send workers into the field and we seek to get them ready for it. The raising of children is extremely important. They will be the pastors and magistrates and estate runners and child rearers and educators of the next generation. And so, God will give us reformation. Will it last more than three generations? Let's use the lawful means. Let's be faithful. Let's not compromise. Let's not be pragmatic. Let's be the most pragmatic. Let's apply the law of God. So, Romans 13 we read last time the verses about the state. I'm going to read those again, but we're not going to, I'm not going to comment on them. You have the written commentary there from the interpretation from two weeks ago. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 9. Page 3. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. All right, let's go to page two. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. The most frequent way of using owe no one anything except to love one another is to try to argue that debt is always sin. This is, this is the most frequent way I've heard it referenced. So I want to tell you, I'm sure this will shock you, 
I don't believe that. I don't think that's what the text is saying. So what is this saying? Well, first of all, let's look at the context. Verse 7, render therefore to all their due. When someone's do something, do you owe it to them? When someone's do something, do you owe it to them? Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. And the idea is, you shouldn't owe, you owe no one anything except to love one another. The obligations of the law of God are the love that you owe. If you love another, you fulfill the law. So, the law of God requires you to give taxes, customs, fear, and honor to lawful authorities. That's a debt. Now, there's plenty of warning in the scriptures about debt. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What we're being taught here, though, is you should do what the law of God teaches you to do. You should love your neighbor. You should not accept that there are obligations besides that. You are free from the doctrines and commandments of men. This is in the context of the seven verses we just read. This is about the limits of the state. And this is an assertion of the regulated principle of the state. Now, there's applications beyond that. We can think about how there are foolish debts to owe. You do owe taxes, customs, fear, and honor to lawful authority, but that's a limit. There's a limit. You are obligated to pay taxes no higher than 10%. You are obligated to pay customs that are meant to cover the costs of security at borders. You are obligated, and that's the Constitution doesn't allow states, by the way, to take more than that, because that was understood. And the concern was that states not do that, so states are not allowed to extract more than the cost of running their border checks in their border check customs. So if they, if they over-collect, they're obligated to disperse it and give it back. They're obligated to stop collecting once they've over-collected. So the idea here is to recognize the biblical limits of fear, which when should we fear the magistrate, not only for wrath but conscience sake, when they apply God's law? And what honor should we give? The honor that's limited and defined by the law of God. Those are all owed to civil magistrates who are legitimate. Taxes, customs, fear, and honor. Now, look at point C, page 2. Point two C. This is often applied to debt. Can debt be loving? Well, first of all, the thing that's warned against over and over again is the death spiral of loans for excess consumption. These are the loans that have the lowest return and the highest risk. Think about this. You think, I'm making $100 a day or whatever, right? Let's just pretend that. I'm making $100 a day and I'm spending $110 a day. Okay, you're borrowing. So how are you going to make it so you can pay that debt back? If you don't have a plan to make it so that you're increasing, then not only are you spending future earnings, but you're also now paying interest for the use of the money for the excess. And so you are going to have your deficit grow. This is a guaranteed way to be a slave. You will serve the lender. You will pay interest, which is the fruit of your labor, and you will increasingly become dependent. Consumption, overconsumption, beyond what you produce, is dangerous. And borrowing to consume is dangerous. And the interest that you have on that debt puts you in a death spiral that accelerates. You are giving away your freedom to consume. Our call to dominion 
is not to worship our bellies, not to worship pleasure, not to worship luxury, but to increase what we produce. So the kinds of loans that are lawful are business loans, loans where you borrow money to increase production at a cost that is lower than the value you think you can produce with it. Now, can you tell the future perfectly? No. So is it possible that your rate of return will be less than the cost of the debt? Yes. Is that a risk? Yes. Is there a risk in not taking out borrowed money? Yes. You cannot avoid risk. All you can do is choose which risk to take. It is unavoidable. It's your job to be courageous, to be competent, to get things done, and to use resources to increase your dominion. And you know how you tell if you're doing a good job at increasing dominion? Is it profitable? Efficient dominion taking is about the profitable use of resources to increase resources. And so you measure wise investments by the expected rate of return. And in addition to that, you measure wise investments by how quickly will they help you to accomplish some significant goal to glorify God. And sometimes it's worth taking on something that's higher risk for the sake of being able to do some great work or to avoid some great disaster. Generally speaking, it's sin to gamble. What's gambling versus investing? Investing, you have an expected rate of positive return. Gambling, you have an expected rate of negative return. Those are the definitions. You get a better definition, let me know. I'll argue with you about it. That's the difference. So, if the difference is the expected rate of return, sometimes you might say, for example, let's pretend you're trying to flee Nazi Germany and you don't have enough money to get out. Well, if you gamble with the property that you've got, you might be able to get enough quickly to get out. And if you lose in the gambling, you're stuck in the same place where you don't have enough to get out. The only reasonable thing to do is to gamble with your property. That's the best investment because it's your property or your life. And so the level of risk that's appropriate is based upon the cost if you fail and also the rate of return. So these are the things that govern that. You have to be decisive in choosing what to risk for what gain. You apply this to battle, it's obvious, right? If you stay in one place, you lose. If you move and fire, you are likely to take harm at a higher rate for the moments you're moving than when you were behind cover. But if there's no movement, the probability of being outflanked, being attacked, being surprised is high. And so you take the risk to try to win. Money is the same. Love involves taking risks with property, with your life, with your time. Another example of business loans, you hire an employee and you say, do this and I'll pay you this amount. You're taking on debt because you have to pay them those wages. The bill comes due. Ordinary trade debt, give me this thing and I'll pay you in 30 days time. That's trade debt. Banking, you're either borrowing or you're lending money. And they pay you interest because they lend it out. Jesus says it's better to give to the bank than to put money in the ground. He punishes the lazy, wicked servant for not putting money even in the bank. And if it's been a good work to put it in the bank, it was a bad work to put it in the ground. Hoarding is not the legitimate investment of Jesus Christ. We take risks with property. Hoarding is a risk too. So what's the difference between investing and borrowing or lending? Investments are essentially expensive debt, but they simply limit the borrower's downside. I'll give you X dollars. You give me some percentage of the profits until you give me my money back or a higher rate we have to negotiate the price of buying me out later. 
you are obligated to share profits with a person who owns a part of a business. Investment is a type of debt. It's a very expensive debt. Why is it expensive? Because it limits your downside. Sometimes that's worth it. The other kind of debt, and this is the debt that has the highest return and the lowest risk, it's charity loans to worthy recipients. Charity loans have the highest return because the Lord gives the return and he doesn't give it in money. He gives it, they can providentially give it in money, but he gives it in terms of blessing. Secondly, it's the lowest risk because it's guaranteed by the Lord God Almighty. His bank is pretty sound. Charity loans to worthy recipients. By definition, these must charge no interest. The repayment must simply be the value of the original loan if it is possible and when it is possible. Those are the kinds of loans and the Bible differentiates between them. And so there are some loans where we are not to charge interest. Those are charity loans. All the other kinds of loans are dealt with in either business loan and investment, which is just a type of business loan, or loans for excess consumption. All of the warnings about debt are focused upon excess consumption borrowing. Now, here's the thing about borrowing for business. Borrowing is leverage. Why is that term used? Well, leverage is, a, is an analogy from physics where you know, if you use a longer stick, you can lever it under something. You can use a fulcrum point, right? You can kind of use, in, in Britain, they call it, um, they call it gearing, something like that. They reference the idea that gears can increase you know, leverage, increase force. So pulley systems, leverage, right? these things increase the force that you can use. So you as an individual can pull on a lever or use gearing in a pulling system, pulley system to increase the weight that you could lift. Leverage increases the directional force of your actions. So if you borrow money and use it stupidly, it will increase the slam against the ground for your stupidity by a magnifier. Because you will have more to repay having foolishly used the resources. If you, however, use it wisely, it multiplies the force of the wise use. And so this idea of leverage, this idea of borrowing to increase the force of the action, because you don't have the resources for the amount of dominion you're trying to take. So this requires a plan, a planning. So this, the Bible in verse 8 is not saying it is sin to borrow in all circumstances. If that were the case, it would be a sin to lend in all circumstances because you'd be causing someone to sin. And we're commanded to give charity loans. We're commanded to give charity loans to our worthy brothers. And it's a good work to invest in putting money into a bank when they have reasonable rates of return, not now. All right. Point three, because he who loves another has fulfilled the law. But don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. Don't owe anyone anything except to do what God commands towards them. Because if you love somebody, you've fulfilled the law. So how do people twist this? They twist it by saying, I don't need to obey the law, I just need to love people. And I just have a theology of love or an ethic of love. But Paul immediately follows this by reading out five out of the six commandments from the second table about how to love your neighbor. And he summarizes it with love your neighbor as yourself, which is a commandment from Leviticus. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, well, in the context of verses 1 to 7, this explains the limits of the state as being limited to the law. In the context of verses 9 to 10, it is clear that our duties to our neighbors broadly are contained in love. If we put it in the context of both verses 1 to 7 and 9 to 10 this explains that the law of God shows us how to love including magistrates because magistrates need love too D love is the desire for the well-being of the object it's the desire for the good of the object okay so love love is not fluffy feelings love is not an emotional state 
Love is wanting what's good for the person. If you love somebody, you want their good. If you love somebody, you want what is good for them. That's what it means to love somebody. If you don't know what's good for you, if you don't know what's good for them, how can you love them? So love requires understanding what the good is, what the purpose of life is. If you know people who do not know the God of the Bible and you think they love you, they don't really love you. They don't know what love is. They might like you. They might prefer you over non-you. Let's hang out. Your presence is better than your non-presence. They might prefer, they might think they have a view of what's good for you. They might think that what's good for you is for you to have fun. They might think what's good for you is for you to have lots of money. They might think what's good for you is for you to have political power. But those definitions of the good are not the good. And so when you have somebody trying to advise and help you to accomplish their understanding of the good, the, the choices that differ from the choices of pursuing the God of the Bible will make it so that there's a difference in the type of counsel and actions. And what they advise and what they do. So if you love somebody, you're seeking their good. If you are seeking something other than the good for someone else, you are seeking their harm. You hate them. So the only way for us to seek someone's good is to desire them to grow in the knowledge of God and to use the law of God to apply that to them. Now, people who don't love you but in fact hate you, they're not friends. What are they called? They're called enemies. So how should we treat our enemies? If you go, you're my enemy, you don't know God, I hate you. Push them off the side of the boat, run away. That is not the appropriate way to treat our enemies. What are we commanded to do? We are commanded to love our enemies. But when you love your enemies, what do you do? You apply the law of God towards them, and you seek to help them grow in the knowledge of God. Love your enemies, but don't confuse who your enemies are with who your friends are. Your friends are those who know what is good and seek your good through the means of the law of God. Love your enemies. Love your friends. Your friends love you too. Point E, the law explains how to seek the good of the object. How do we know how to seek each other's good? The law. It explains it. F, God is the good. Man possesses God by knowing God. The law teaches man how to seek the possession of the knowledge of God and how to seek the spread of the knowledge of God to others. And the law teaches us how to grow in knowledge ourselves, and the law teaches us how to bless other people by trying to help them to grow in the knowledge of God. G, the law is summarized in the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor. And the two great commandments are explained further by the Ten Commandments. And so Paul's about to prove that to us. He's about to show us, here's the second great commandment, love your neighbor, and he's going to give us five out of the six laws of the second table. Why? Which one, which one is he missing? He's missing honor your father and mother. Weird. Did Paul forget that? Well, if we look at verses 1 through 7, it tells us to honor lawful authority. It applies it to the state, which is the fifth commandment. So Paul has told us keep the fifth commandment, but don't owe anybody anything except to love them. Loving people is fulfilling the law towards your neighbor. All of these commandments, the remainder of the second table of the law, teach you how to love your neighbor. So he's showing us the systematic ordering of the law. Now, he then explains, love does no harm to a neighbor, verse 10. He explains, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That doesn't follow. Therefore, what's the... 
doesn't follow. If, if I'm not doing harm to them, I'm loving them. Oh, it does follow if you understand that harm and love are complements. They're A and non-A. That's the only way the argument holds. Because don't do harm, therefore love. That doesn't follow as an argument unless don't do A, do non-A. That, that necessarily follows. When you're loving somebody, you're seeking their good. When you're not loving somebody, you're seeking their harm. Neglect and active harm are both hating somebody. Neglect and active harm are both hating somebody. Love doesn't do harm to the neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, let's consider page 3.5. Okay. Love does no harm. It does good. Good is not a harm. Harm is not for good. Talked about point A already. Point B. Some people will try to say we don't need the Old Testament for civil order because the New Testament has an excellent libertarian order. The harm principle is right here. Right? Government should punish people when they do harm. Do no harm. Got the harm principle right here. Libertarianism established, and we can ignore the Old Testament. That is very convenient for conversations with people about things in the Bible I don't like. Don't have to talk about them anymore. The harm principle does not resolve governmental problems. If you're following the argument, we have to now criminalize all sin. If you want to read this harm principle as explaining lawful punishments for the state, then what we need to do is penalize all sin. So now we've made a totalitarian mind-reading state that is supposed to go around and punish all hate. Hate crimes valid. Our, our government has nailed it. Frankly, too small. Tax me more, punish more things. That's what that reading would do. The, the harm principle here is not a harm principle that satisfies the libertarian desire. The harm principle does not resolve governmental problems. The harm principle does, does come from Scripture, but it's not what libertarians wish it were without the explanations from the Old Testament about crimes. The danger of accommodation to the world to make Christian political theories seem more palatable by truncation is something we have to be aware of. We don't like talking about the Bible because we are ashamed of it and we don't feel like we can defend it. So we don't wait to talk about the Bible. We present the Bible and when they try to make us feel bad because there's something about shellfish in there, right? Well, homosexuality is an abomination. Well, shellfish are an abomination. Deal with that. It's like, have they read anything written by any Christian ever about Old Testament laws? Do they feel like this is something that we have never thought about before? Right? The, the level of biblical ignorance in the culture that does not understand the difference between moral laws, civil laws, and ceremonial laws just doesn't take Christianity seriously. And what happens is whenever we engage with the enemy, we make sure to retreat real quick to try to limit casualties. So this is why you need men of valor in the civil sphere, because they have to be willing to challenge that. Now, one of the reasons you all are tempted to very much love Donald Trump is because he played the man. Right? Somebody would say, isn't Kung Flu racist? And he'd say, what? What word again? And you'd make them say Kung Flu over and over again while they're trying to say it's racist, right? Like, that's one of the most hilarious things any president has ever done. He played the man. But he did not have the character qualifications for the office. And so what we're looking for is godly men who have guts, who are willing to argue and to say, what again? What was the what was the thing you thought was racist? Can you say it again? I didn't hear you. What was that? You don't say that I didn't hear you because that's a lie. Just asking over and over again. That'll do it. The willingness to challenge, to say, yeah, so what? Or okay, you're offended by the word of God, I'm offended that you're offended by the word of God. And the ability to argue, right, this, we have a mass media circus that's called the political system. So we have to fight harder, we have to be brave, we have to not care when they slander us, we have to laugh at them. 
And that culture is being built up. And I'm thankful to that. For, I'm thankful to God for that. But this is, this is the thing. We need a willingness to engage and to not be ashamed of the Bible. Now, love is the fulfillment of the law because the law teaches to do what is for the good of the neighbor, not the harm of the neighbor. Which means we know, okay, we're supposed to seek the good of our neighbor. We have the definition of that. We're supposed to apply the law as the means. And we understand that we are either, at any given moment, sinning or we are doing a good work. You must do a good work. You must live by faith. You must apply the word of God. You must take every thought captive to the word of God. That means every action, even every idle word. The Lord Jesus Christ says we will be called to account for every idle word. Idle words come from idle thoughts. Every thought is to be brought captive for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 11. And do this, do what? O love. Okay. O love, knowing the time. Don't do harm, do good. Knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. The time is the time to be useful not to sleep. What's the difference between sleeping and waking? Well, if you're asleep, you might be getting rest. But if you're awake, you can do other good works. And if you're called asleep and you're actually not physically asleep because you're awake physically, that is generally a way of saying you're not paying attention, you're not trying very hard, you're kind of zombified going through this. Think for a second about the people you know. Just generally speaking, do they more seem like they are zealously pursuing goals or do they more seem like they're zombified going through life entertaining themselves to death? The danger is acting like we're asleep. Now, the people you know who are pretty zealous are probably pursuing after things that aren't necessarily the good. You can really zealously chase down opportunities for fun. You can really zealously chase down opportunities for pleasure. You can really zealously chase down money. You can really zealously chase down power. You can also zealously chase down the knowledge of God and spreading the knowledge of God. When you see zeal, it's normally for the first three. Why would we expect the sons of darkness to be more zealous about their gods and the sons of light to be zealous for their god? So if you're asleep, you're living uselessly. And that's foolish. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The curse of redemption is further along in being... I'm sorry, the, the, the reduction of curse in the world. Sorry, the, the curse that we're redeemed from there's a, re- there's a reduction in curse that's occurring as the gospel goes forth. Blessing is increasing. And Christ is closer to returning. So we have, we have more objective light. We have the completed canon. We have the history of the church and working through and pulling together systematically verses. The darkness that Paul was talking about, we're in the daylight now. This is, we have the completed canon. The night was almost gone. You could see the hints of the sun rising. It's daytime now. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. The, the attire that is fitting to be worn in the light. And that, in fact, is also itself light. Now, this armor is described in more detail in Ephesians 6 and 1 Thessalonians 5. I have the citations down there. I'd encourage you to read those. Think about them in more depth. Verse 13. Let us walk properly, or you might say decently in the day. 
You know, you know what's indecent to walk around insufficiently clothed? You know what is decent to walk around with sufficient clothing on? And so being decent or proper in your walking around in the light is wearing the armor of light. That's the idea here. We've got the light. It's daytime. You're walking around like you're asleep in your undergarments. Put on the armor of light and walk around like woken up people who are doing useful work. That's the idea. That is decent behavior for the daytime. Not, and here are things that are either always inappropriate or that have some place potentially in the night. Feasting, for example, we're told in Ecclesiastes, you know, I think there's a prophet who says something about this too, but the idea that there's a, there's a curse for princes that feast in the day because they should be feasting at night to celebrate after they've done their work. Right? Revelry, what's revelry? Revelry is, actually I'll never finish reading for you, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You're supposed to walk in a way that's fitting, the clothed person in the daylight, not in revelry. Revelry is feasting and drinking with noisy merriment. So, is it always wrong to feast? Is it always wrong to drink? Is it always wrong to laugh and to you know, have enjoyable conversation? It's not. But you know what is wrong? To make that your God. If you make pleasure your God, it's a disappointing God. You'll either get frustrated because you don't get it, or you'll be getting it and become bored. Not in drunkenness. Right? Drinking to excess. Making good times the goal. The goal. It's the same thing. And not lewdness and lust. The word for lewdness there is coitus, or coite is the root. Uh, it's used in Hebrews 13.4 to refer to the marriage bed. It says the marriage bed is undefiled. Um, Romans 9.10 uses this word, uh, the root for this, uh, to refer to Rebecca having conceived a child. Um, so those are two non-sinful examples. And we also have in Luke 11.7 the idea of being in bed with one's children, and it's obviously not sexual in the context. And so the idea is the bed. Here, the bed is being used as an example of a place for sexual action, which sexual action is not always wrong. It's appropriate in marriage. So what's the idea here? Not in the pursuit of sexual action as the goal. And then the word lust here is actually um, a, which is like, you know, like, like atheist, like not, a, not, so gaya, not holding in, not continent, not, and the opposite of that would be letting loose, okay, so the idea is you are controlling yourself, you're not chasing after sexual uh, fulfillment in a way where you're not controlling yourself, right? the controlled way is to pursue marriage, lawful marriage, and then to enjoy sexuality in the context of marriage. Our culture is obviously dominated by this. There is an obsession with sex. The idea that you can't be happy without being fulfilled in whatever weird sexual desire you have. You want to feel like you're a man and you're a woman? Great. It's an inalienable right. You need to be able to have whatever weird sexual perversity you need. That's the idea that our culture preaches. It proclaims that it's a right, that children ought to be able to become the opposite sex without the permission of their parents, the absurdities that our culture has gone to. And they don't, they're not even interested in it. Like, they're actually bored with themselves. Right? Like, all of the nonsense that's all over the place, you, you, they're already bored. Right? Gay marriage is boring already. Right? It's perversion. It's false. It's bogus. It's a mirage, not marriage. Right? These are not real this is a bogus view of the world. But this sexual nihilism, where they are chasing pleasure, and they're already bored with it, this is what our culture is dominated by. And so the unfulfilling nature of it, it's disgusting. And we are still, we have this draw, right? And there's this, all this perversion on billboards and wherever. We are called to control ourselves and to not pursue an inappropriate use of sexual desire 
but to seek to be holy and to pursue godly marriage. And if you're trying to get a spouse, the best thing to do is to be the kind of man or woman that the man or woman you'd want to marry would want to marry. So what you need to do is seek to be a godly man who's effective, who's prophetic, priestly, kingly. A godly woman who is submissive and who shows honor where appropriate and who seeks to display the feminine graces. Who is going to support the work of prophecy, priestliness, and kingliness. To be a helper in that. To be a queen. So every time you have a sinful sexual desire, that is a reminder to work harder to be ready for marriage. So what you do is you take that desire and you turn it to focus on that, becoming fit to attract a spouse that you'd want we're called to not walk in strife and envy. The word for envy there is zello, which just means zeal. Okay, strife has to do with contentions, fighting, wrestling. Okay, not all fights are bad. Not all zeal is bad. Fights that are bad are fights without a good cause. Zeal that's bad is zeal without knowledge. Don't walk around picking worthless fights and using your zeal without knowledge. That is a, a sort of being drawn to violence. So the, the idea of revelries, drunkenness, lewdness, and lust points to being enslaved to pleasure-seeking. Strife and envy have to do with being enslaved to sort of um, seeking power or money. Verse, uh, and then point 16, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on the armor of God, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on the armor of light. You are putting off these sinful actions and you are replacing them with good actions. If you just say, stop doing this thing, that's going to last for about five minutes. You say, stop doing this thing, do this good work instead. So I just did that for you, right? I said, you have a sinful sexual desire. What you need to do is you need to say, this means do something to make it so I can get married. You put on good work to make it so you're fit to get married. You put off chasing down that sinful lust. Every sinful desire is like that. You have to identify the good work that you should do for a lawful fulfillment of the end that glorifies God. And you put off the sinful use. So that's being captured and summarized. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We are to starve the flesh. It is a besieged enemy and we must win the siege. No supplies should get in. We are to encamp around it and to starve it until it surrenders. And if they won't surrender, then you have to storm the thing. How do you storm a stronghold of the enemy? You pray against it, you fast against it, you take the word of God and you argue against it in your mind and you apply that over and over again. These weapons are a bombardment and airstrikes and they shatter that besieged town. It is your obligation to conquer every place the flesh is holding out against the faith that comes from the word of God. Your soul is to be totally subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put on the armor of light. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to take every thought captive. Comments, questions, objectives, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Nye? Thank you for your teaching, Elder Just one quick uh, request. Could you repeat um, the, the summary that you gave uh, in terms of qualifications for, um, for civil magistrates or for candidates, um, the fear of God, fearing God? Yeah, fearing God is being a believer. Sure, but, but when you're looking at a whole list of candidates and, and like you have limited time, you're trying to research to, to see, like, and it's very hard to find out whether someone is a believer by like, Googling them, right? Sure. And you, you don't really have the, the time to go and call them or call their offices. Ideally, you would do that, but... Um, if you don't have any basis to believe that they are Protestant, 
then they're found guilty of yes. not being a believer. So, like, like in terms of a minimum, like, I can vote for this guy based on this limited knowledge if they're a professing Protestant that, like... If you have evidence that somebody is a professing Protestant and you don't have other information, yeah. it is not worth you spending hours chasing down yeah. and say so you have a credible basis based upon the ridiculousness of our own system. I mean, you know, the founding fathers would have like screamed at the idea of a single representative in the House of Representatives representing over 600,000 people. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's laughable, the idea that anybody can have any idea what their candidate is like. Right? So, and that was one of the criticisms of Patrick Henry, the concern that the Constitution's wording would allow for very large districts. That happened. So he said famously of that, he smelled a rat. And he was right. It was a rat. So you can't really know them, right? But if you do, if you have evidence to the contrary, that, that's, that's the evidence you use. So you, you have limited evidence you've got, and the longer they're in office, the more you can kind of tell are they acting in such a way that they have a, a credible profession or not. So if they don't have a credible profession, it's probably better to try to cycle through with the guys you have less evidence about. So, Okay. Mr. Bryce. Thanks for teaching us the recent. In line with uh, what Mr. Knight was saying, how do you choose an elector when none of them are godly? When none of them are godly, when none of them meet the qualifications, you write in or you don't vote. So there wouldn't be like, any situation where Trump would be a better candidate to vote for as opposed to not voting for anyone and just kind of voting for everyone? So you're not throwing your vote away. You are appealing to heaven and asking God to raise up the laborers, and you're taking an action in the honor of the Lord, refusing to do evil. It feels useless, but God has structured the universe in such a way that he blesses obedience, and he governs history. And if we seek to do things that we are not lawfully permitted to do and ask for the blessing of God upon it, we are behaving contrary to what we are asking for, and we are behaving contrary to the law of the God who blesses. So it is better for us to say these are not fit candidates to write somebody in or to not vote and to appeal to heaven in a protest and to seek to raise things up. So my goal is to build an estate, encourage the building of a church, to gather men, to work together, to find candidates, not using the church as a candidate finding thing, but me as a private person I'm seeking to figure out how to get there. So there's an order of operations. That's what we as Christians are called to do. We're to apply the order of operations, and we just go, okay, this is a mess. What is the next good thing I'm supposed to do here? And if right now I have to vote for nobody, or I have to vote and write in somebody that's, you know, in all probability not going to win, then that's the faithful stand in that time. And let's be real your vote does not matter. Here's why your vote does not matter in a pragmatic way. People almost never win by a single vote. And in addition to that, there is a system that is outside of your control. It matters not in the sense of the effect. It matters in this way. It matters that it's a moral action and that God will bless it or curse it. So what matters is voting properly based upon conscience. And your, the probability of your single vote affecting the outcome is extremely low. The probability of God blessing or cursing your vote is guaranteed. So that's why it matters as a moral action, but to be pragmatic with it is not pragmatic. All right. Seeing no other comments, questions, or objections, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the teaching of your word. I ask that you would help us to see a godly order put into place, that you would help us to build our estates, to get our households in good order, that you would help us to see this church put into good order, and, and broadly other churches, and to see the church at large, that you would cause reformation, we ask that you would help us to make it so as opposed to being tempted to have to vote for unfit persons, that we instead would have opportunity for fit persons to vote for, and that you would help us to apply our work and resources to that, 
but not out of order. We ask that you'd help us to make sure that we don't seek to save the world without first getting our own houses in order. We ask that you'd help us to focus on getting our own lives, getting our own households, our church, and our local governments in order and moving out. I pray that you would prosper that. I pray that you would give us blessing, that you would give us dominion, increase our resources that are available to us and allow us to do that, that you would add to our numbers and help us to divide up labor. Father, we know that you will glorify your name. And we know that you will bless your people in the application of your word. So we ask for that blessing. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.